You on page 16, I want you to, I want you to get a thought in your mind. So <clears throat> the big word is theology. Theology proper means what do you believe about God? So we have a massive shift that's happening because what was true of where we live and the culture we're in has been referred to for centuries now as a Christian culture. So the dominant impact in people's mind and thinking theologically about God came from Christianity. Well, that's over now. And theology is being rewritten. So everybody has a theology. Everybody believes something about God. So here's, here's what I want you to think about while I do something else for a second. If, if you were to give some words of what our culture believes about God, not the church, not talking about the church, not talking about from the Bible, what does the culture believe about God? I, I'll ask you to fill those in in a moment. Uh, <clears throat> so last night I, in, in the notes I quoted from several books and uh, as I usually do at camp, I, I bring good books for you to read. Uh, I read most of these books when I was uh, between the ages of 18 and 22. Uh, nobody told me that there were good books out there when I was 15. Probably wouldn't have read it anyway. But uh, honestly, uh, I'd never read a book in full, had a, over a 4.0, never had read an entire book, re read an entire book until I graduated from high school. And what changed me was my desire for the Lord and to know things about him. So I quoted from Pursuit of God. Uh, anybody can understand the Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozier. It's an excellent book as to understanding how this fleshes out of being a satisfied soul and how you pursue after him. It really was what began to shape the things I'm talking about. Uh, this book came later. Uh, one of the reasons I recommend this book, those of you who are constantly doubting your salvation, and who are re-upping regularly, uh, you know, trying to get saved again. Uh, this was J.D. Greer's problem, so he put this to a book, Stop Asking Jesus in Your Heart. What he's really trying to explain is the true nature of salvation. So what does it look like? What does it result in? It's an excellent book, and uh, I have several copies of both of these. All the books are five bucks. They cost me a lot more than that, but I'm going to sell them for five. Because if you don't have some buy-in, you won't read it. You'll just take my book and throw it down. So some buy-in on your part. I brought one copy of Counterfeit Gods. So this, is, th this book's a little bit heavier. Keller's a little bit thicker. I say he's the modern-day C.S. Lewis and how he writes. So you have to have, put your brain on a little bit when you're reading Keller. Uh, he's the one that said, everything has been an idol, anything can be an idol. And it came from this book, Counterfeit Gods. It's, it's worth reading. They'll be up here afterward if you want to get some, and I have some others I'll talk about later. So... Give me a couple of words. Attributes of God from this culture. Back there. Deistic. Deistic. All right. So, so God's separated from us. He has anything to do with us. There's a God, but he has nothing to do with us. Okay. I, I'm with you on that. What else? Good teacher. He's a good teacher. All right. What else? All right. Love. I mean, that's it. So if you open the modern theology textbook... From our culture, God is love. Now, does the Bible teach that? Yes. But that's being abused. Because in the modern theology textbook, God is not fill in the blank. 
He's not judge. Well, he's good, I think, as long as he's good to me, right? God's not holy. God's powerful. I'm going to talk about this. But God's only powerful as it relates to me. So this is how the deism works back there in the back, what he said. As long as God stays up there and stays out of my way, he's fine. Until, until I need him. Then when I need him, he's obligated, he's got to help me because God's love. And he can't judge me. Whatever, I'm, I'm free to be whoever I am. It's really a dangerous theology that is soul damning. It, it, it's, it's dangerous deeply. So we want to mine the depths of the Bible a little bit more and understand some more of who God is. And we're just going to look at two things about God, two attributes about God uh, today from this text. We're not exclusively uh, considering all the things that are true of God. So, so I have looked upon you, this is verse 2, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. So let me pray. Father, I ask now that as we think through these two things, your power and your glory, that you would wake us up for a few minutes and that you would cause us to think deeper through the power of the Spirit and that we would do what David has prayed, that we truly will behold your power and glory over these next few moments. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. How many of you read Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe? Uh, all right. Who's Aslan? Come on. Who is Aslan? Oh, come on. Think deeper. Don't just be concrete. Who is Aslan? He's God. Okay. That's what he represents. So Lucy is about to meet Aslan. So this is where I'm at. I'm extracting from the line which in the war robe. And Lucy says, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. And he's the king, I tell you. So I want to take Lewis's idea here. And if you're going to talk about the power and the glory of God, you're not talking about a safe God. So for those of you who've got this safe God in a box who stays over there and doesn't have anything to do with you. You don't understand who he is. He's the God of power and glory. So first, let's look at the power of God. God is the source and the originator of all power. Psalm 62.1, once God has spoken, twice I've heard this, that power belongs to God. All right, we're really tore up in the world, particularly the United States, with two nations that we're really worried about. Who are they? All right, we're kind of worried about China and Russia. But right now, we're, that's not who's on the news. Who are the two? They're two little rogue nations. We're all tore up about them. North Korea and Iran. What are we scared they're going to get? Nuclear weapons. 
Nuclear weapons are power. And we're afraid of these little people getting power. But here's, here's what I find absolutely ironic. We're worried about these two little rogue nations getting a nuclear weapon, establishing power, but we as a nation are not concerned about the one who has all power. The Lord God Almighty. All power, this is what it says, all power belongs to the Lord. So it better be a concern to us that God has this power because, next page, his power has no limits. It says, his brightness was like the light, Habakkuk 3, 4. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. So what, what we do see of the power of God, we see in a veiled way because if we saw the full power of God, we could not handle it. George read last night from Revelation about his face shines like the sun. His, his, his power is absolutely incredible. And what we do witness regularly, if we're Christians, is, is the veiled look at his power because his brightness is like light. Job 26, 14, Behold, these are the fringes of his ways. How faint a word we hear of him but his mighty thunder who can understand. So I preached a series of sermons. We used to have Sunday night church at Parkwood. I preached a series of sermons on the attributes of God. This happened, okay? This happened. So it's a Sunday night. It's in the summer. And I get to the power of God. And one of those southern humping thunderstorms hits. <laughs> I would make a point and the building would shake. I mean... I was scared. The church was scared. It was just one of those moments when God said, hey, I'm just going to give Parkwood a living illustration for the next 30 minutes. I finished preaching. The storm was over. And it was just a reminder that, that the power of what God can do just in a simple thunderstorm. Um, probably later this fall, they'll evacuate this place. They do it almost every fall. Why would they evacuate this place? Hurricane. The reason they're building these buildings 15, 20 feet off the ground is because of the power of what happens when a hurricane sweeps in and what it does. God's power is greater than that. When you see the effect of a hurricane or something like it, you're just seeing the fringes of the power of God. Job 9. He removes mountains and they know it not when he overturns them in anger who shakes the earth out of its place and pillars tremble, who commands the sun, it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and the Orion, that's constellations and the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. He is the Lord of creation. He spoke everything that we see into being. He upholds everything. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of glory and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. So his, his limitless power is what created. His limitless power can be exhibited at any time and will be at his coming. But right now, he is upholding everything by the word of his power. This is Colossians 1.17. It's not in your notes. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What did you learn in science classes holding everything together?
There you go. Somebody went to class. <laughs> atoms. So here's the question I got. What's holding the atom together? Huh? I didn't hear what you said. The strong nuclear force. What's holding the strong nuclear force together? The, the answer's right here. In him, all things hold together. Now think about this. Let's, let's go back to our, 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 our North Korea and Iran issue. What are you doing with a nuclear weapon with atoms? You're splitting them. And you're unleashing a power. It is God who's holding all that together. And if God unleashed His limitless power on us, what a nuclear weapon does is not even comparable. Listen to me. If God wasn't holding it all together right now, it would all fly apart. All of it. So His power is to create... His power is also in holding everything together. Anybody ever been in an elongated power outage? Like the power was out for days. All right. It's a miserable thing. If, if this, listen to me, if the power went out in the United States for a week, what would happen? Mass chaos. Absolute mass chaos. We would starve just think about how many of you don't have enough food at home to survive more than three days. Just think about this. How could you get water if there's no power? We are very dependent on power. And listen to me. Apart from the power of God, we're all doomed. He is the one who's created, and he's the one that holds all things together. Turn the page. We want to behold his power and his glory. So first thing we see that the glory of God is evident. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. The reason we like to come to the beach is because it's an evidence of the power of God. One of the things we see is, is God's power and his beauty of creation. And it's hard to see here. Uh, we, we stay normally way up north at the very, very end of North Myrtle Beach or Cherry Grove. And you can get out there on the point out there, and it's dark. I mean, it's very dark. And the stars are absolutely gorgeous. So just looking up into the night sky is an evidence of God's glory. And one of our favorite things to do, we're not going to be able to do it this year, is we come in the middle of August. Does anybody know what happens in the constellations in the middle of August? Your parents never taken you to do this? We're a nerd family. There is a massive meteor shower that happens every August. And one of our favorite things to do is to go lay out there on the end of that point, just lay on our backs and just watch it in the middle of the night. It is, it is a glorious, glorious moment to see the handiwork of God and what he does. Everything, everything is pointing us to God's glory. It's evident around us. The glory of God is all-consuming. So this is the completion of the temple in 2 Chronicles when Solomon completes uh, the temple. 2 Chronicles chapter 5, it describes the, the, the priests and the singers and they're all coming in with their instruments and their voices and they're in unison, they're praising God. And here's what they say, it's at the very end of the paragraph. For he is good. 
for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house. Now, already you see something a little bit different or unusual. But, but here's what will happen this week. As you get your minds and your hearts focused on the Lord, as you, as you begin to contemplate who He is, as you begin to long more for Him because you're separating yourself more from the things of the world, here's what will start to happen as is already happening, and I pray that it will happen. The glory of God begin to rest in these worship services. It, it, it becomes very evident to us and it becomes all-consuming to us. To where we, where we are focused on Him, not each other, not on how we sound. Because the glory of God is all-consuming. Last, the glory of God will never be diminished. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. So if the, if the sun is extinguished right now, we're done. So what the, what the Bible is teaching, that the he, in heaven, there'll be no need for the sun because the glory of God. Now you see this tied to the power of God. The glory of God is going to give its light. Its lamp is the Lamb. It is Christ the Lord. So here's my question this morning. Do I realize who I am called to worship? Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. All right, who's ever been around somebody famous, like, like right here, close, had a conversation, spoke to him, talked to him? Somebody famous. Who? who? All right, who? Who's, who you been around famous? Dabo Sweeney. All right. So you, you get to be around him regularly because of what you do with, with, with the football team. What are people like around Dabo, non-players? The players get used to him, but who, who, what are people like when they get around him? Yeah. Anybody else been around somebody famous? Back here, who? What'd she say? Webb Simpson, all right. He's a golfer, right? What do people act like when you're around him? Were they like, hey, man, good to see you, huh? They don't know what to do, right? Because we know who they are, right? We know something about them, so we get around them. It's like, ooh, wow. There's a sense of awe to us and people whispering. And, and you know, do you know who that is over there? Listen, when, when we are in the presence of God, we should come to him and offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe that, that is ten times greater than being around any famous person that you can think of. Because, unlike famous people, our God is a consuming fire. There's a book I read several years ago, and it had a quote from a, female theologian, her name's Annie Dillard, and Annie Dillard said, do we have any idea who we evoke on Sundays? She said, what they ought to do in our worship services is they should hand out crash helmets and life preservers, for this God may awaken one day and meet us face to face. 
Our God is a consuming fire, and he must be worshipped in reverence and awe. This is David Wells. It's a book called God in the Wasteland. I don't have a copy of that. Until you finish seminary, don't try to read it. But this paragraph you can't understand. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. And his Christ is too common. It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as to not be noticeable. So at some point in your life, you're going to have to choose a church. And you're going to have to make some choices about that church. And I'm going to give you two things that you've got to use in making that decision. Number one, the word of God must be clearly proclaimed. If you back off on that, you're going to join a people who are going to go down the path of sin. Not that there's not going to be sin in a church where the Bible is proclaimed, but you're going to do it collectively with a group of people if the Bible is not the primary thing. Number two, God is worshipped with reverence and awe. Now that could be with an organ. That could be with a singer, the lead worshiper whose voice cracks and is not on tune. It's not about how well the music is done. It is by what that worship is doing to the people who are participating. And I have been in places where this music was slap awful, but God was worshipped with reverence and awe because the people understood who they were worshiping. It is a dangerous thing, in my opinion, to be in a worship service with people going, God must not be weightless on us. And we need to be with other believers who understand who it is that we are worshiping. And we personally must understand who we are worshiping. God must be not only important, he must be crucial. We must see him and notice him for who he is. He is not inconsequential. Now, this last question or statement is going to seem like it's coming out of left field, so track with me here. If I am in Christ, I no longer fall short. Now, I started yesterday with Romans 3.11. No one, what? No one seeks God. No one seeks God. You keep going down in the chapter, verse 23, it's right here. For all have sinned and fall short of what? The primary motivation for becoming a Christian is not that you get to go to heaven to be with your grandmother. Remember? The primary motivation for becoming a Christian is this. That there is a God who is all-powerful and all-glorious. Who must be worshipped with reverence and awe. And you, as a sinful person, are short of that. In other words... You can't worship him. We all have sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Now look in chapter 5. It's here. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have, what's the next word? 
peace with Okay. If I don't have peace with this all-powerful God, whom I have fallen short of, if I come into His presence, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to die. I'm going to be judged. It's unthinkable what's going to happen. But through Christ, we are justified by faith. We have peace with God. So it's, it's now that this relationship that is broken between me and God, I'm the one that broke it, is now made right, and I am welcomed into his presence, into relationship. It is through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace, by now which we what? Stand. So we had fallen short of the glory of God. Now through Jesus Christ, we have peace with God, and we now stand. And what do we do as we stand? We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So our salvation is for the purpose of us knowing God. That we can know this God who is all-powerful and all-glorious. And there's so many other things that I could tell you, but that is the primary focus we want to see in this text, that we can now know him and we no longer fall short, but through Christ, through Christ, we are brought into his presence. And I just want you to think right now before we walk out of here, for some of you, how inconsequential you've treated the gospel. And I say this with love, and I say this with compassion. I say this with a broken heart. I fear for some of you who sit here at Parkwood week after week and hear the gospel and step on it. Who trample it under your feet. God in His grace has communicated to you how you might have peace with Him. So whatever it is that you're afraid of out there, whatever it is your little North Korea or Iran, these little rogue nations you're scared of, you better get your attention on who you better fear. And God doesn't want you to live a life of fear. Reverence, not fear. He has made a way for peace between you and him, and that is through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. Thank you that you revealed to us who you are. You didn't have to. You could have just judged us. But thank you you revealed who you are, and you've revealed who we are, and you've revealed salvation through Christ the Son. May we not trample it under our feet that we may now come to your glory and rejoice in this gospel. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.